You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.8, Drifting, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Mecha and Gundam fan, and a knowledgeable podcast host who messes up from time to time is totally adorable. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and wondering just how much of this series will consist of passing of the torch moments. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 417 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Christopher L., Nick M., and Esper Wind. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. A subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash GundamPodcast or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 10, Sayonara Fa, or in Japanese, Sayonara Fa. But first, let's tune our receivers to Radio Free Shangri-La. Once he was feared throughout the West as the fastest gunslinger in the Jamatov gang. But when they were wiped out during the gunfight at the Old Grips Canal, he was forced to wander the land, fighting for whoever would pay. On that day, he became... The Lone Survivor! The Lone Survivor! In a saloon on a frontier town in the Zahn territory, the lone survivor calls for another glass. Barkeep, another glass. You damn credits, no tarnation and good here, you clock-checking barrel-tram varmint. Pay first, or by Jove, get the heck out. Go on, vamoose. Leaving the saloon, he mounts a powerfully built horse. Hi-ho, Hombrabi. Away. <laughs> hey, that's my horse. He stole my horse. Riding all night, the lone survivor arrives in the rundown town called Paradise. Just as the sun rises over Main Street, a ruffian in a red bandana emerges to block his way. Now hold up there, partner, and keep your hands where we can see him. This here town belongs to the Viano gang. You reckon on starting trouble with that six iron on your hip? You best reckon again. Out of my way, scoundrel. I'm here looking for work. I ain't got time to kill you and all your friends right now. Well, if it's work you're after, maybe you're in luck. Mr. Bojack's got a powerful need for desperados. Just... Mosey on over to the mayor's house and let him know you're looking to die for a hot meal. The lone survivor goes to leave when the ruffian calls out again. Hold up, I'll I'll show you the way. I recall Mr. Bojack offering a bounty for anyone bringing him new recruits, and I'm fixing to save up enough to send my sister to school back east. As the two ride up the town's main street, they encounter a beautiful young woman in a yellow dress. The ruffian tips his hat to her as they pass. Who was that? That was the schoolmar, Miss Fa. They say she used to be a gunslinger till she got tired of all the killing and came here to teach the little ones their letters. Mr. Mashed Tomatoes, the preacher, he says she's like a flower in the desert. He probably meant desert. 
I said so too, but Mashed Tomatoes was real adamant about it. Huh. Soon they come to the mayor's house. Inside, the lone survivor at last meets with Bojack Geesman, mayor of paradise. So, my lad, you're looking for work? Uh, yep. How do you feel about fighting for money? Heck, I'd do it for free, but a man's gotta eat. That's what I like to hear. Stick with me and I'll see to it you get all the food you want and all the fighting you can handle. Tell me, lad, have you heard about the Anaheim Railroad Company? They are fixing to build a new rail line through Zahn, and they're looking to buy up land round Paradise to do it. Now, a lot of folks around here don't want to sell, so the company has hired the AEIO Yug Detective Agency to come round and terrorize folks off of their land. Now, Mr... Sorry, I don't think you told me your name. I am the Lone Survivor. The Lone Survivor. Right. Well, Mr. Survivor, I'm no enemy of progress, and a railroad stop in paradise would certainly help me get the ore from my mine to market. But I can't stand to see outsiders coming here and pushing the locals around. If anyone's going to force those small farmers off their land and profit from it, well, it should be a local like me. So, here's what you're going to do. The lone survivor nods as the mayor outlines his plan. He smiles to himself. Finally, a chance for revenge. And next week on The Lone Survivor. One of our partners has been sending telegraph messages to the enemy. They don't call me Fatal Far for nothing. <laughs> How do you like that roast pork, Mr. Survivor? When the heck did those two big cattle wrestlers in the Diano gang get their hands on a Gatlin gun? Eight lads, suckers. And now the recap for Sayonara Fa. Now that the Argama has finally found the Lavienne Rose, they can replenish their severely depleted store of mobile suits. But Rue, who is responsible for retrieving them, is instead bickering with Judo. Walking up to them, Fa complains that Judo goofs off every time she turns her back and sends him to help with Zeta repairs. You're supposed to go get the new mobile suits, aren't you? Why haven't you launched yet? She asks Rue. Still, Rue takes her time, and tells Fa she'd better lighten up, or no man will be interested in her. The bridge crew on the Argama notice an unauthorized, outgoing signal, but no one can be spared to investigate where it might have come from, and Bright assumes it's a malfunction. It's Bicha and Mondo, once again tipping off the Endra with the Argama's location, and letting Axis know that they want to make a deal. Ino walks in on them and swears he won't tell anyone what they've done as long as they please stop their plan. Resolutely, they continue to send the message, insisting that the political game adults play has nothing to do with the likes of them. With his too honest face, they don't trust Ino to keep their secret, so they tie and gag him, leaving him behind in the out-of-the-way comms room. A woman with big, two-toned hair, long, painted nails, and bright makeup has arrived at the Endra, Kiara Soon. She flirts with Mashima and Goten, enjoying how embarrassed and uncomfortable they seem, but she is here on orders. Mashima is in trouble with Haman. He needs to establish a stronghold at Shangri-La as soon as possible. Kiara is there to watch him and report back. 
Haman won't give roses to those who don't carry out her will, she warns. While they talk, Leandro receives the signal from Bicha and Mondo. Mashima will launch in this latest attempt to capture the Argama, and Goten will attempt to infiltrate the Ayug ship and make contact with the Axis collaborators. Fa seems irritable, arguing with Judo, scolding Lina and El. She is torn between her desire to stay on Shangri-La with Camille and her responsibilities aboard the Argama. Lina tries to tell Fa about a concern. Ino missed lunch, and he isn't the kind to be forgetful or to be goofing off somewhere. But Fa is too preoccupied to think any more about it, and sends Lina and El to do laundry. Grumbling that she didn't come to this ship to do laundry, El suddenly has an idea and rushes out of the room. In the halls, she runs into Bicha and Mondo. She can tell they're up to something, but as she tries to convince them to tell her, an alarm sounds. The Axis mobile suits have arrived. They push past her, and she loses them in the passageways of the ship. She tries to tell Judo about her suspicions, but at the same time, Fa is yelling advice at him and yelling at her to put on a normal suit, and Judo is hurriedly launching in the Zeta. The Argama launches countless dummies into the space around the ship to provide some cover, and some of the dummies have been outfitted with bombs. Bicha and Mondo put on normal suits and make their way to the outside of the Argama. From there, they shoot at the surrounding dummies, trying to clear a path for the Endra's mobile suits. Out in space, Judo finds that the Zeta's beam rifle isn't working. It's not plugged in properly. I can't fight like this, he declares, running from the Gaza Seas. Fa can see no alternative. She will have to take the beam rifle plug out to Judo in the Methus. The engineers can't believe it. You can't go out in half a mobile suit. But Fa is insistent. If they don't help Judo fix the beam rifle, they are leaving him to die. In a small, flimsy craft disguised as an asteroid, Goten approaches the Argama. Once close enough, he is able to pull himself aboard and make his way inside. Standing in the now-empty hangar, El spots him sneaking aboard and decides to follow. He glides silently through the halls, passing by the open door of the laundry, and Lina, Shinta, and Kum also see him. El shushes them and they join her, wanting to see where this brazen stowaway is headed. Out in space, Fa reaches Judo and begins work on the beam rifle. Judo waits nervously and suggests that maybe they should get in their escape pods and run. With a withering look, Fa bluntly declares that the moment he got into the Zeta, he took on a life or death responsibility to defeat the enemy. Before long, Mashima finds them, and Judo in the Zeta has to lead him away to give Fa time and safety to finish her task. Thinking that he is safely ahead, Judo is surprised when the Hamahama catches the Zeta in one of its extendable arms, but the Zeta is able to tear out of the Hamahama's grasp. Fa finishes repairing the beam rifle and brings it to Judo. The Methus, reduced to a torso and arms, looking small and vulnerable amidst the fighting and the asteroids. As she hands off the weapon, Mashima attacks, and Fa shields the Zeta with the Methus. Mashima's beam saber bites into the Methus's shoulder. Fa screams, and Judo fires, driving Mashima away. The Methus is now completely immobilized, but Fa is alright, and she tells Judo to protect the Argama and come back for her later. Now fully armed, he is able to beat back the Gaza Seas easily, and is joined by Rue, returned from her trip to the La Vienne Rose and ready to provide support fire. His pilots are being wiped out, so Mashima decides to retreat and trust that Goten's infiltration will be successful. Yet Goten, lulled into a false sense of security when he finds the bound and gagged Ino and assumes him to be the collaborator, is quickly tackled and subdued by Ino, El, Lina, Shinta, Kum, and Haro. They turn him over to Bright, and El confesses her suspicion that Ino knows the identity of the collaborator. The battle over, Judo starts to go get Fa, but Bright tells him no. There's too much risk that the Zeta will be spotted and attacked again. The Methus is drifting directly into Side One airspace, and one of the colonies will retrieve her. Although Judo is upset at the thought that Fa is leaving them, Fa seems calm and happy. Now that she knows Judo will take care of them, she can say goodbye to the Argama.
It would seem that this is the last episode in which we will be discussing the long-suffering Fa Yuri. But I assure you, we will be discussing her quite a lot this week. So much to say. <laughs> I know there were some sections in this episode that made you really mad. There were some that made me quite mad too, but there were also some very lovely ones. There were. <laughs> Where to begin? I had not previously thought of myself as having anything in common with Fa, but the way Fa gets treated in this episode really resonated with me because, frankly, I have more in common with the very responsible and conscientious Fa than I do with the devil-may-care flirty Rue. I am much more likely to be trying to get people to do their jobs then to be like, oh, it doesn't matter. Gosh, you're such a scold. Absolutely. I feel a lot of kinship with Fa here too. And I think anybody who's ever been in the position of being like the responsible one in any group is going to feel that. If you were the one who did most of the work on group projects, you really feel for Fa here. <laughs> yeah. What hit me in reviewing my notes and thinking about the episode and thinking about how it ends a huge part of Fa's frustration is that she can't leave unless these other kids are going to pick up the slack. If they're not going to do their jobs, she can't leave. What will happen to the argument? Like, many episodes make her seem kind of useless, but she gets a lot done. She knows the ship. She knows the crew. She knows what tasks need to be completed. And we can see that in the way that she kind of angrily you know, tells people what to do and instructs them on what needs to be done next and shouts advice at judo and... She's kind of a de facto first officer. And she has such a sense of responsibility that as much as all she wants personally is to go be with Camille, she cannot leave the Argama until she feels certain that judo will take care of and protect them. And not just that Judo will take care of and protect them, but that everybody in that little group of teenagers will do their respective jobs. That the laundry will get washed and the lunches will get handed out and the maintenance will get done. And none of them are giving her any reason to believe that they will do those things if she's not on top of them the whole time. Even Judo, who is more and more coming to accept his role as guardian of the ship, and even Rue, who is quite competent when she's not being cute, uh, like, this episode gives Fa very little reason to believe that either of them can step up and do what they need to do without somebody to scold them from time to time. Fa treats their situation like life and death because she knows from personal experience that it is. And they don't. Not that their lives haven't been hard, but they haven't lost anyone to this yet. And Fa has. Fa has buried a lot of friends. And she's so brave. I want to insert expletives there because <laughs> she's so bleeping, <laughs> cussing, brave. She is. On my first watch through, I was really incensed by how poorly Fa gets treated throughout this episode. And then I went back and I watched it again and I realized the only people who treat Fa poorly are the newcomers. It's all the new kids and Rue, who is one of the new kids. Um, Fa is actually treated with respect by the crew of the Argama, by the people she's been around for a while now. And when she wants to go out in the Methas, no one is saying, Fa, you can't do that. They're saying, Fa, that is half a mobile suit and you will die, except Bright, who is like, Fa can do it. I believe in her. The other difference between Fa and not everybody on the crew, but in particular, uh, Judo and Rue, Fa doesn't think that she personally is important. That's part of why she's brave. She looks at the situation and she says, we can't let judo just die out there we cannot let our zeta pilot and the zeta be destroyed it's worth risking me to save him and that is also why fa does the laundry and hands out the lunches and does whatever needs to be done because she's not too important to do those things and likewise it's part of why she has to stay on the ship paradoxically her feeling of her own like interests and desires not being that important is why she can't leave to go stay with Camille. 
because it's more important that she keep the Argama running. She has responsibilities. Like she tells Judo, once you get in that cockpit, you're responsible. <laughs> and not just to yourself, to all of these other people. And the way she says it to him, it really lands. Like he seems deeply affected by that. Well, and he, this is right after he has said, uh, maybe we should just run away. And she says, <laughs> she gives him such a withering look. Like, you little coward. <laughs> well, and because of the way it's framed, you don't actually see the look she gives him because she, like, turns around and you see sort of the side of her face. But you can tell how withering it is because you can see his face and he is withered. We've brought up Rue a couple of times. I, I am disappointed but not surprised to see her fulfill uh, many aspects of the quote-unquote cool girl stereotype that I suspected that she would. Her whole vibe, particularly in that first conversation she has with Fa in this episode, is, oh, I'm not like other girls. I'm chill. <laughs> Fa, no man will ever like you if you're so uptight, which is such a sexist, horrible thing oh, to say. Oh, yeah. So this felt like it came straight out of a like Japanese workplace comedy and uh, a conflict between like the younger, cooler girl in the office and maybe the oldest, most senior of the sort of younger, unmarried office ladies. Because it feels very much like the way someone would talk about the just starting to get too old to be considered marriageable, like office lady senpai character. Right. The career woman, you know, teased for not being partnered. And it's coming from the young one who is just getting started, doesn't have that much experience, is very full of herself, and, you know, is in a completely different life stage. And I don't think I'm being oversensitive when I say that Rue's, Rue's follow-up, that, oh, Fa, you should just go back to Shangri-La and be with Camille, really hammers home that Rue does not value Fa or anything that Fa does in any way. Oh, totally. And Rue's line at the end to Judo that, oh, this is probably what's best for Fa going back to Shangri-La to be with Camille is somewhat spoiled by how smug Rue seems. Oh, 100% spoiled, and both by her smugness in that scene, but also by how horrid she was early on. Well, because she doesn't actually care about what's best for Fa. She just didn't like Fa, and so she's glad Fa's gone. I was very touched, however, by Judo's anger that she wouldn't become... Like, he has finally learned to value Fa. Fa saved his life. It's amazing that it took that, <laughs> but go figure. You know, cocky, self-centered young man. She saved my very important life. <laughs> what do you mean she's not coming back? But I was very touched by that. He He's upset by that idea. And then to have Rue very smugly like, oh, it's what's best for her. <laughs> With the exception of that bit from Rue, though, the ending of this episode um, feels much sweeter and more respectful than it really has any right to, based just on a sort of top-level description of what happens. Like, the way they talk about Fa and the way it's all presented, and, and this, like, final denouement when Fa is drifting back to Shangri-La feels so, like, like, nice and affirming and, like, a good uh, conclusion to her arc. But if you just described it as, yeah, and then the Argama abandons her in space to let her drift back towards some colonies on the assumption that she'll get picked up. Yeah, that feels like an awfully big assumption to make that, oh, someone will retrieve her. It'll be fine. <laughs> I guess it is fine and it is a safe assumption to make. Fa seems okay at the end there. She seems more at peace than she's been in a long time. Which we know from her speaking to herself is because after this last fight, she finally has some confidence in Judo and in the fact that he will protect the Argama. So there's a possibility here that I want to float because going back to Lost Horizon, the novel that we take the name Shangri-La from and that I think a lot of this early part of Double Zeta is uh, borrowing from, there are two really important characters in Lost Horizon. There's Conway, who is sort of the narrator, at least the protagonist of the novel, and then there's Mallinson, who is his younger protege. Um, Conway is very fond of Mallinson. Mallinson is kind of an insufferable young man. His youngness is constantly commented upon, uh, and it's always driving him to, like, be obnoxious and contentious in situations where it would be best for everybody if he would just calm down. Conway 
when they get to Shangri-La, and if you remember from my research piece, one of the things about Shangri-La is once you arrive, you can't leave. Conway is perfectly satisfied with this situation. He's happy to just stay in Shangri-La forever. Mallinson, mostly because of his youth and his hot-headedness, is desperate to escape. He does eventually figure out a way to get out of Shangri-La. And then he talks Conway into going with him. Conway doesn't want to leave, but he is so fond of Mallinson, he feels like he needs to take care of Mallinson, and so he agrees, and he does leave Shangri-La with Mallinson and this little party of escapees. After they've gotten out, Conway decides to go back. And the book doesn't address whether he actually makes it back or not. It right, just sort he... of leaves him trying to find the way back in. Didn't you say in the book he goes missing and nobody knows what happened to him? Exactly. Some of his old friends find him in a hospital with amnesia. Uh, and they take care of him for a little while until he's recovered his memories. Then he tells his story and disappears overnight. They try to track him down, but all they can find is evidence that he was somewhere in the region around where they think Shangri-La was. And it seems to them, based on his story, that they think he was trying to get back in. Whether he's ever actually successful is a big question mark at the end of the book, along with the question of whether Shangri-La really existed at all. Maybe Fa is our Conway. The youths that she helps are her Malinson. She helps them escape Shangri-La. Even though she really doesn't want to leave. And then she tries to go back, and we don't really see whether she's successful or not. We just see her drifting off toward it. The running contrast between Bicha and Mondo and Judo continues in this episode uh, and takes a rather interesting turn. It basically boils down to Judo on the one hand accepting my actions matter and have consequences versus Bichan Mondo on the other hand, my actions don't matter and there are no consequences. Explicitly rejecting that in this episode. What we pointed out in the previous one was only implicit is now very explicit because Eno confronts them with the possible consequences of what they're doing. And Bicha is just like, nah, that won't happen. Yeah, he says the loss of one ship can't possibly lead to the destruction of the Earth. He also goes on to say this political game is something adults play that has nothing to do with us, which to me felt like a comment from, you know, some creators who were activists when they were young in the 70s, looking at what they see as the dangerous apathy of young people in the 80s. That feels right. Yeah. Like a disengagement. Oh, none of that political stuff has anything to do with me. I just want to live a good life. And that's not the only thing in this episode that feels like a direct shot at the audience, or at least at anime as, a, as an industry and the medium in this particular moment. Because that bit when Rue is talking about herself and seems very self-aware of the nature of her character, where she's saying, oh, you know, you should try to be more adorable. Uh, a cool girl who messes up from time to time is really adorable. And she has this awareness of herself as being a, a type, right? And one that is perhaps put on for male amusement. Uh, and that does feel like a commentary on the anime character creation process and what the audience is looking for. Related to that, I feel like nobody uses the term old type, but I get a sense of a, a contrast between characters from the previous series and our new characters from Double Zeta, and a disconnect between them that is generational, even if some of the ages are close together. Like, you know, something about Fa, in contrast with the characters in Double Zeta, feels old-fashioned in a way that it did not before. Something about her feels like it, it doesn't fit in in this new era. And we have these sort of frequent miscommunications, you know, for all that I can't stand Rue in this episode, she's picked up that there are some issues aboard the Argama that Bright doesn't know about. And of course, rather than just saying that right out to him, she makes like a snide comment, you know, don't worry about me, you should pay attention to your own crew. But she's picked up on something that Bright's not aware of. When... 
Faz in a bit of a mood and ordering everyone around. Lena says, oh, you know, Bicha and Mondo might just be goofing off, but Eno wouldn't do that. The fact that we haven't seen him means something is wrong. And Fa is too caught up in, in her own feelings and in the tasks of the day to really pay attention to Lena or follow up on it. So on top of the, the various sort of personality and attitude differences that we've seen between the old characters and the new, we also have these communication disconnects. Well, you've pointed out before that miscommunications and communication disconnects are a major theme in Double Zeta so far. And nothing encapsulates that better than in the prior episode and in this one where both Eno and then Elle are like trying to talk to somebody and trying to tell them something important, but just can't get it out, can't convey the importance of what they're trying to say. Both Eno and Elle trying to warn somebody that Bicha and Mondo are up to no good. Can't help but be a little frustrated with Bright, though. How hard would it have been to just send someone to check on all the comms consoles? Are they that understaffed? It kind of seems like they are. I mean, the emphasis throughout this episode, and really throughout prior episodes as well, but this is, but it is particularly strong in this one, um, the emphasis on human errors, mechanical problems, oversights, and just the limits of time and resources that the characters here are struggling under, it grounds the series in reality better than even a perfect application of the laws of physics in space would do. And it's also a way to keep poverty as a concept thematically part of the show's DNA, even though they've left Shangri-La. There is never enough. And everyone is just struggling even to get by. So the one aspect of this episode that feels completely disconnected from everything we've been talking about so far is the introduction of our new Xeon character. She's so cool. She does seem very cool. Is she, like Rue, a cool girl type? So no, because she's a sex kitten type. <laughs> Which is to say, again, there is a, a stereotype, a type of woman character in media who is very sexy in her appearance, like deliberately so. It's not, cool girls have to be effortless. And so to the extent that they are attractive, it has to be attractive in a way that doesn't seem to have required effort on their part. They're just naturally so wonderful. It's the face of makeup that looks natural. <laughs> right, that's look. natural makeup and... Uh, and clothes that are attractive, but not in a way that makes it seem like they're meant to be. I, d I don't know how better to explain it. I think that's a pretty good explanation. And then you get like Rue's super long hair, which I'm sure requires an enormous amount of work to maintain. But doesn't necessarily look like it's been heavily styled or requires a lot of maintenance and upkeep. Compared to Kara Soon's two-tone hair color that's been teased. Right, her two-tone hair in this like massive 80s hairstyle. She is doing her nails the first time we see her. She's wearing brightly colored eye and lip makeup. Literally her first appearance in the show is her nails and Being she's painted. painting them. <laughs> yeah. She's wearing a low-cut shirt. She flirts with Mashima, she flirts with Goten, and doesn't just flirt with her words. She touches them, she cuddles up to Mashima. She makes Mashima very uncomfortable doing this. Well, this is part of that whole stereotype. There's a sort of sexually aggressive woman character who actually really freaks men out. They are so unused to that much like forwardness that they don't know what to do with it. They like can't handle it. Well, it inverts the power situation that they're expecting to be in, and that makes them very uncomfortable. This is another example, by the way, of Double Zeta's uh, anglicization of the names being completely nonsensical. Her name is not Chara, her name is Kiara. So is it Kya? Kiara? Yeah, it's, oh. it's like the first two syllables of the Japanese way of saying caramel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Kiara. K 
Chiara soon. So these two are marshmallows and caramel. <laughs> Chiara is also a name. True. Like a real one. <laughs> but I don't think it's a coincidence that his name is the beginning of marshmallow and her name is the beginning of caramel. And she sees right through him, right? She teases him for being naive. When she catches the recording of him, his reaction is, oh, what a what a dirty, rotten trick. And she's like, well, I'm just doing what Haman told me to do. Do you think Haman is dirty and rotten? <laughs> and he doesn't have anything to say to that. <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> I did wonder, this is a total shot in the dark because I am slightly too young to remember, but I wonder if she's at all inspired by Gem and the Holograms. So I think I know who she's inspired by. Okay, cool. And I'll save that for a research piece. Ooh. That's foreshadowing, baby. <laughs> We've said a few times that three makes a pattern. Well, we're on our third Gundam series. And so we can start to look for patterns in the franchise, things that are handled consistently across series. And although we have sort of identified that Judo is a much different person than either Amuro or Camille, I am starting to see patterns in how uh, the Gundam world, the Gundam franchise, deals with its protagonists. And what sort of patterns have you observed? There is a certain initial childishness in their eagerness to pilot the giant robot against the idea that somehow they can pilot this war machine, but not be part of the capital W war <laughs> machine. Hmm. Do you think it's a metaphor? For actual war? Do I think Machines? the space do I think the space war is a metaphor for real war? Yes. No, do you think <laughs> the war machine is a metaphor for the war machine? Yes. Uh, and what I what I say when I mean the war machine, I mean the military industrial complex, I mean the wider conflicts at play, the war itself, the military. You know, all of them start out from this position of, oh yeah, I'll pilot the thing. I even want to pilot the thing. But no, I don't want to be a soldier. How dare you give me orders? I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Let me pilot the thing. I will pilot the thing, but I will not become the thing. And there is a certain childishness to that, I think. I don't know how better to describe it. This desire for the fun and exciting parts of something without recognizing the responsibilities and consequences inherent in it. Growing up is realizing that you cannot have the power of the monster without becoming the monster. This fuels part of the second aspect, which is they are always reluctant heroes. None of them really want to be a hero. None of them really want the responsibility of that. And we see all of them resist it multiple times before they accept that that is the position that they've found themselves in. And, like... You know, to the extent that we all have free will, they could all, at some point, choose to run away. I don't know what story we would tell then. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of them do, you know, run away in one sense or another. Amuro quite explicitly, Judo in this episode, toys with the idea of running away. Camille definitely seems to have considered it at a few times. There is a, a sense that the Gundam story finds it more interesting and perhaps more admirable to have a reluctant hero who comes around than to have someone who's really gung-ho and really wants to be a hero from the beginning. And it's not as if we haven't gotten that kind of character as well. Look at Katz. Katz is the classic example of somebody who, from the beginning, really wanted to be a hero. Or Garma in First Gundam. We get another judo new type moment, this time in reaction to Rue's arrival. So there's a connection between them. Okay, okay, we get it. <laughs> they are the most annoying characters and they're in love. Whatever, I don't care. <laughs> we also maybe get some foreshadowing about L. Lena mentions L has always had really good intuition. Hmm. <laughs> Which to me sounds like <laughs> maybe there's some potential there. For L to be a new type. But who knows? Maybe it's just woman's intuition. Yeah. I, you know, Gundam is a pretty sexist show. 
Who knows what will happen with Elle? She gets to be, you know, a hero who captures an infiltrator one minute and then she's completely absent from an episode the next. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't help but laugh when Elle is like, I'm going to figure out what this guy is up to and capture him and that'll show Fa. <laughs> I'm like, well, your, your reasons for acting this way are not great. But your actions are good, so I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> we'll allow it, yeah. <laughs> Here's another thing, another pattern for Gundam protagonists. Becoming the pilot isolates them. This was less obvious with Amuro and Camille, who were already kind of isolated, Camille especially. But we do see with Amuro that being the pilot separated him out from the others who are around his age, the other refugees. And now with Judo, it becomes very explicit. He was basically an equal member of this group, and now he has become quite distinctly separated from them. He rarely appears in the same scenes with them. He rarely talks to them. His interests are more closely aligned with the Argama than any of them. He is developing at a faster pace. And when he goes out to fight, and Bicha and Mondo are sitting on the top of the Argama, shooting at the dummy asteroids with like rifles and pistols, they explicitly do not try to help him, which is a dramatic change from the way things were earlier in the show. Well, the group is fragmenting. I don't know how much of this series you remember, and so I don't, I don't know if it's worth asking you to predict what you think is going to happen to Eno next episode. But L tells Bright, I think Eno knows who did this and won't say. If I were telling this story, I'm not sure how I would have it play out, but I would probably have Bright threaten Eno with the same punishment that he would threaten the traitors with, because he's protecting them. And then the point of tension becomes, do they come forward so that Eno won't be punished, or do they let Eno be punished and continue hiding themselves and protecting themselves? To what extent are they willing to sell out the rest of the group? It seems L has firmly decided to align herself with the Argama. Although she could have told Bright as well, oh hey, I suspect that Eno and Mondo are up to something and she doesn't. Though she does, uh, it seems like, try to tell Judo, but gets interrupted by the battle. So for all that Judo is becoming more and more isolated, the group is really fragmenting. We have Lena in a lot of ways taking Fa's place as looking after Shintan Kum, although they don't seem to need as much looking after anymore. We have Elle taking over some of Fa's old duties. There's certainly... Although Elle, <laughs> although Elle has that moment where she's like, I didn't come here to wash clothes. Yeah, there's just like casual and completely default treatment of Elle as we have a new girl, she'll hand out the lunches. Felt a little gross. But pretty true to form... And probably pretty true to life, too. As for your predictions about what will happen to Eno in the next episode, well, hmm. And now Tom's research on the likely influences for Kiara soon. This week, I want to start talking about Kiara soon where she came from, and what she represents. But you can't really talk about Kiara soon without covering, at least, rock music, street fashion, feminism, and youth culture. That's a broad portfolio, and we only have this little time together, so I'm going to start with a smaller question, and we'll see where that takes us. Why does Kiara's hair look like that? <laughs> And by that, I mean that Kiara Soon has a gigantic mane of hair, which she wears to just below her shoulders, and which is dyed in two separate tones. Parting her mass of hair in the middle of her scalp, Kiara has dyed the left side candy red. The right side is golden blonde. There is some supplemental material which suggests that her hair might be naturally blonde, but even so, the particular shade of blonde that shows up on screen in Double Zeta sure looks like it came out of a bottle. Looking at it now, 34 years after she appeared on television screens in Japan, it is easy to say, wow, that is some classic 80s hair on her. 
And if a character with her look appeared on screen today, it might be sufficient to call her an homage to the styles of the mid and late 80s. But like bell-bottom jeans in the 70s and frosted tips in the early 2000s, big hair only became emblematic of the whole 1980s in retrospect. What movements and trends of her age must Chiara have evoked for contemporary audiences in the 80s? From what movements and trends did her whole look, and her hair in particular, derive? What mood does she represent? And answering that question brings us back to what I mentioned a moment ago. Rock music, street fashion, feminism, and youth culture. So let's start digging in. In the late 1980s, Japan's youth, and this is a category that researchers in Japan at the time defined roughly as including those as young as 15 and as old as 28, although Gundam might well define that more narrowly. Japan's youth was deeply dissatisfied with the state of their lives. When compared against equivalent cohorts in other wealthy countries around the world, from the United States and West Germany to South Korea, Brazil, and Australia, as well as some others, young people reported in surveys that they were happier at school, at home, at work, and in their relationships with their friends than did the youth of Japan. While the majority of Japanese youth did respond that they were at least more or less satisfied with their lives in each of those categories, when asked whether they were actually satisfied, the numbers start to look a lot worse. In a 1988 survey, only 33% said they were satisfied at home. 11.2% said they were satisfied at work. Both of those were the worst among the 11 countries surveyed. 25% said they were satisfied at school and 54.1% were satisfied in their relationships with friends, and of the 11 countries, only China fared worse on those questions. And quite contrary to the stereotypical image of Japan, the youth in the 1980s were more individualistic and less concerned with the welfare of society as a whole than those in any other country surveyed. Japan scored highest for young people wanting to get rich, and second to last for wanting to work on behalf of society. Shout out, by the way, to Sweden, whose youths somehow managed to do even worse than Japan's abysmal 2.8% on that question. When asked if they wanted to do something to serve their country, 41% of Japanese youth said yes, second to last behind West Germany. When asked if they'd be willing to sacrifice their own interests in order to serve their country, that number dropped to just 5.5%, the worst in the survey. Despite this widespread dissatisfaction, Japanese youth also reported the lowest willingness to do anything about it. Presented with a scale of options for how to reform society that included illegal or even violent action to reform society, engaging in legal activism including petitions and labor strikes, voting for it but nothing more, and dropping out of society entirely, most Japanese youth were unwilling to do anything more than vote. Only 21.7% of those surveyed were willing to engage in legal or illegal activism. 16.9% said they would drop out of society, and a staggering 20% simply refused to answer the question. By the way, shout out to the late 80s youth of Korea, where 63.4% of youth favored activism, the highest number in all of the countries surveyed and perhaps related to how they were at that very moment in the middle of an ultimately successful campaign to dismantle the military regime that had run the country under a facade of democracy ever since the coup d'etat of December 12, 1979. Getting back to Japan, as the researcher Takada Akihiko put it, Japanese youth tend to give priority to their personal interests. They pursue their own economic affluence without regard for their society or nation. Finally, they do not want to participate in active social reform, even when they are discontented with society. When asked, taking all things together, would you say you are happy? Only 30.8% said they were. Taking all of these things together, we get a portrait of a dissatisfied and disaffected adolescent cohort, a group that is less interested in reforming society and more interested in satisfying their own desires. It was, therefore, fertile ground for the creation of new subcultures or countercultures which offered alternate, parallel, and competing social worlds that could be more satisfying to the individual than the dominant culture and the so-called real or adult world. 
and the 80s did see the emergence of vibrant new alternative cultures built around rejecting the traditional values of a dominant society that Takada describes as incomprehensible and complicated. This trend did not start in the 80s, it was not limited to Japan, and it was not solely a product of dissatisfied youths, but those youths played a major role and Japan was an epicenter. And the 80s produced unique new styles and methods for rejecting the mainstream culture. One of those new styles emerging in the 80s was otaku culture, but although otaku culture's development is perpetually relevant for Gundam as a whole, Karasun is no otaku. Her visual origins lie in other contemporaneous movements, and the first one that I want to talk about is Gyaru. The 80s produced a dizzying array of fashion and lifestyle trends like the Middle East-inspired Takenoko Zoku in 1980, the brand-name clothing-obsessed Crystal Zoku in 1981, preppy styles based on the fashions of U.S. college students, new traditional, and the all-black Crow Tribe or Karasu Zoku in 1982, the popular music-inspired New Wave in 83, and the girlishly cute Kawaii in 84. In the mid-80s, it became popular to imitate the looks, including the haircuts and the fashion choices of idols, rock stars, and even anime characters, in what was called designer and character or character fashion. But while these were all major style trends, Gyaru was something more like a movement, and ever-evolving, it outlasted them all. Gyaru is a Japanese way of saying the English slang word gal, and it first entered Japanese as a marketing term for a brand of jeans in 1972. Initially, the term was used to describe a young, social, easygoing, and attractive woman. The song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, might as well have been written about them. Now, you know how these things go. In the 80s, Gyaru girls came to be stereotyped as superficial and sexually promiscuous. Magazines targeting Gyaru girls were attacked by everyone up to the diet as bad influences on the youth. And of course, there was a class component to all of this. Gals were a distinctly middle-class phenomenon, an active rejection of the fussy, proper styles associated with upper-class kids from, quote, good families. While their well-to-do peers chased trends that, as a rule, mirrored the styles of upper-class American and European youths, Gals became something entirely different. It is important for me to note at this point that the big moment for Gyaru subculture is actually going to come a few years after Double Zeta, and modern Gyaru has much more to do with the Gyaru that developed in the 90s than its predecessor in the 80s. Yeah, I was going to say, for those of you who have heard of Gyaru, you probably have a much more contemporary idea of what that is. And it's very different? Yes and no. Right now, in the mid-80s, is the time when the groundwork is being established for this subculture. And tracing these developments through the 80s will help us to understand the aesthetic ideas that were floating around during this era, the same ones that were being picked up for Double Zeta's characters. And what Gyaru would eventually become is a natural outgrowth of what lay at the core of its aesthetic at this point. And it was in these early years that that was being established. And the essential point of the Gyaru aesthetic for decades to come is artificiality. Now, when you hear me say that Gyaru style was all about embracing artificiality, you might think I mean that in a negative way, and I really don't. What I mean is that Gyaru's style in the 1980s was all about rejecting the traditional, dominant, naturalistic beauty ideals, and about embracing big, bold, vivid, highly constructed beauty instead. Bleached and dyed hair that was elaborately styled, tanned skin, artificial eyelashes, artificial nails, obvious makeup in bright and unnatural colors, and even color-changing contact lenses. As is usually the case for this sort of style subculture, it's going to start out as a relatively small deviation from the norm, and then over time get more and more extreme. So, you know, Gyaru now look like exaggerations of what Gyaru in the 80s were already working towards. Combined with Gyaru-specific clothing brands, all of this created a look that was all about artifice and consumption. 
While natural-seeming styles do often still require great expenditures of time and money, the application of subtle makeup and styling choices that are designed to go unnoticed, the Gyaru look was all about flaunting it. Everything was bought, everything manufactured. Show off, don't go unnoticed. All of this consumption required money, of course, and so it should be no surprise that the emergence of Gyaru coincided with increased participation in the labor force by young women. After high schoolers, the stereotypical Gyaru was a young, unmarried office worker. And while the stereotype of gals, Gyaru, as sexually promiscuous was, like so many other moral panics over the years, rooted in terror of women's sexual agency, it is also true that Gyaru's style was more openly sexual. But while she shares the essentials of her aesthetic with those early Gyarus, the artificiality, the overt sexuality embodied in her dyed hair, her long, brightly painted nails, the striking colors of her makeup, and the cleavage-bearing cut of her uniform, Kyarasun is no gal. The particular expressions of her aesthetic feel much more rock and roll. And as long as we're talking about rock and roll, let's mention another subculture built around artificial, constructed aesthetics that was emerging in the Tokyo underground music scene at the same time that Garu was taking hold in Shibuya and that would explode just a year after Double Zeta came out. Visual K. Oh, no way. <laughs> Visual K, which means something like visual style, was basically Japan's answer to glam rock. Taking that same subversive aesthetic and the same desire to stand out that characterized Gyaru, Visual K rockers instead channeled their energy into showy costumes, big hair, and elaborate stage performances. Like Gyaru, Visual K is clearly coming out of the same influences that would create Gyarasun, and much of the aesthetic of Double Zeta. And it reveals the ways in which the countercultural movements in Japan were looking to and trading ideas with countercultural movements in the rest of the world. As a child of glam rock, Visual K was also a sibling to the post-glam movements that dominated rock music in the United States during the 80s. New wave, post-punk, pop-punk, hair metal, and so on. Though these were reactions against glam, they also inherited much of its style and its constructed artificial nature. And to answer the question from the beginning of this section, this is what the big dyed hair would have meant for someone in the 80s in Japan or the United States or Europe. It would evoke the aggressive, cutting-edge music and fashion of the new modern era. It is part of an ostentatious rejection of conventional norms for dress, behavior, and presentation. Whether naturally colored or artificial, there is no shortage of real-world examples of women from this era displaying manes of hair like Chiara's. Nor is there any lack of them in fiction, and for me, the one that always comes to mind first is Gem from Gem and the Holograms, because there was a trailer for it on the VHS copies of the Transformers, and I watched them over and over and over <laughs> and over. But you know, Kiara's hair is actually a little different from all of those. Usually if a character from this era is going to have dyed hair, it's just going to be the one color. So where does Kiara's two-toned style come from? And now this is one of those research questions that took me a long time to find an answer, but which I can now recount to you in the span of less than a minute. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. Kiara Soon's hair is an almost perfect match for the hairstyle and color that Cindy Lauper wore in early 1985, including for her appearance at the American Music Awards, where she beat out Madonna to win Best Female Artist in the Pop and Rock category. She was wearing a similar style, albeit with less of the golden blonde, when she appeared at WrestleMania 1 that same year. And not only does her hair match, but during her appearance at the American Music Awards, Lauper also wore an intense, highly saturated lipstick and heavily pigmented eyeshadow. Well-lit close-up photos taken during the event reveal that the lipstick is red, almost blood-toned, while the eyeshadow is blue. But in video from the event, the lipstick starts to look purple and the eyeshadow green. And hey, those are Chiara's colors. Next time on a very special episode, we take a brief U-turn to talk one more time about Zeta Gundam's Camille Bidan, this time with Doctor of Educational Psychology and Learning Consultant Bailey Garbutt, who also happens to be a longtime Gundam fan and co-host of The Cutting Mat Podcast. You will see the battlefield of new types. You will see the cutting mat of new types. 
No, it's like because they're doing gunpla. Oh, it's wholesome. It's so wholesome. Nina. <laughs> Stop trying to make this Gundam podcast morbid and depressing. <laughs> which is a thing that you are doing yourself. Luckily, that's not a thing I have to try to do. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La this week included Way Out West by Twin Musicom. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, Why does the Psycho Gundam, the largest Gundam, not simply eat the other Gundams? Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but the world needs to consider it. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week was submitted by Credit Sharma. Thank you, Credit Sharma. And thank you for listening. Red's is a blue's is a yellow's is a purple's is a So this felt very much like the way like younger yeah Just go forward <laughs> That works out perfectly, actually, because I really want to research Walkmans. <laughs> when you do that, you should also look into when handheld tape recorders became feasible. Oh, I was going to say personal calculators, but like the little electronic calculators. But I could do tape recorders, too. All kinds of small, portable electronic devices. Your dang name credits, no charge needed, she Go on, vamos! That was One of our partners has been sending down They don't call me Fatal Far for nothing. They don't call me Fatal Far for nothing. They don't call me Fatal Far for nothing. For nothing. For 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 nothing. Entirely sure where in America these people come from. Eat lead, suckers. Tell me, lad, have you heard about the Anaheim Railroad Company? The lone survivor. Yeehaw. All right. Research piece, research piece, getting ahead. It's only a Friday. Say that part. That's perfect, actually, because of what the next line is.